0: We've got a, a photo here of Devante Sanford. Last summer, uh, Devontae walked out of jail having spent the previous nine years behind bars for a crime that we now know he did not commit. Devante had been a 14-year-old kid known for tally, telling tall tales when he was picked up outside a Detroit drug house. Police were looking for suspects and they saw this 14 year old kid, and so they took him in. They charged him with a murder. Devante was developmentally impaired, blind in one eye. The ordeal was terrifying for a young teenager. After being interrogated repeatedly over the course of two days, 48 hours, without an attorney or without even a parent present, he finally confessed to a crime because they told him it would end the interrogations. At that time, his confession made uh, little sense. Uh, Devontae got more details about the crime wrong than he got right, even in his confession. After his confession, he received legal counsel, but it was shoddy by anyone's telling. Wayne County Circuit Judge Brian Sullivan said that Devontae Sanford's case was, quote, thick with speculation, conjecture, confusion, and unanswered questions. Shortly after the trial ended, another man confessed to the murder, and he signed an affidavit stating that he had done it. But it was too late for Devontae Sanford. He was sentenced to 37 to 90 years in prison. An investigation last May found that a former deputy chief had also contradicted sworn testimony claiming Sanford had drawn the entire diagram of the crime scene, including the location of the victim's bodies, when in fact the police had drawn the diagram themselves. The piece of testimony that sent this kid to jail had been false. We now know he didn't do it, and he lost nine years of his life. We're going to talk today about justice was my own realization in dealing with the courts, as many of our members have from time to time, legal issues. I remember years ago when I realized for the first time that a prosecutor's job was not to find out what actually happened and then determine the most likely, uh, most appropriate charge for that crime. A prosecutor's job, at least within the criminal justice system as it now exists, is to get the biggest punishment for the biggest crime possible. The assumption is then that the defense attorney, who will be equally matched, will try to get the smallest penalty for the smallest crime, and that the judge and jury will somewhere figure it out in the middle. But it means that the government is paying somebody whose job may be actually to conceal truth because their job is to get the biggest possible punishment for the biggest possible crime. Thank you. Justice. Um, Past year or two, we've had reports out of North St. Louis County of debtors' prisons in which poor people who are incapable of paying their court costs or their fine are illegally held in jail in some of these North County municipalities, held against their will, kidnapped because it's illegal to do this, And courts and court officials have continued imprisoning people until they can get somebody who knows them to bring cash to get them out. It's illegal. The judges know it's illegal. The court officials know it's illegal. And somehow, the court officials are not in jail themselves for kidnapping people illegally. Concerns of justice. You look at the legacy of federal housing policies in in St. Louis and in the United States. Uh, I was talking even just recently with some members about it, about how throughout the 1950s, 1960s, uh, federal housing policies were such that if you were poor, you could get federal publicly subsidized housing provided you did not have a spouse, provided you were a single parent home. How many moms had to send the father of their children packing in order to have a place to live. This is something we did. This is a cycle that then repeats itself generation after generation because our policies, our structures as a nation in our attempt to help a situation of poverty actually ended up undermining the family structure among our poorest and most vulnerable citizens. You add to that issues of racial injustice, a history of redlining in real estate, of segregation in the schools and public and private facilities. then you look at the balkanization of our region into something close to 100 municipalities on top of school districts, on top of other organizations and other, other, other districts. And what happens then, just to give you the picture of the state of justice in our region, is you have small municipalities in which people socioeconomically self-segregate. And what that means is a poor municipality, which has to come up with this much money to run a police department a fire department, has to come up with the same amount of money as a very rich municipality. And so today, if you look in the St. Louis region, even at just personal property tax rates, The personal property tax rate in impoverished Velda City in North St. Louis is 20 times the personal property tax rate in Clarkson Valley. Meaning our poorest people we sack with 20 times the tax load. We're going to talk about Amos because these are things that Amos in his prophecy in chapter 5 addresses directly, charging additional taxes or higher taxes to the poor than to the rich giving unequal treatment and unequal access to the legal system. Rich people having certain leverage that poor people don't have. Nobody planned all of this. It's just the way in a world that is fallen and broken and not what God wants. It's the way sinful human beings self-organize in their own interests such that the rich have one set of structures and the poor have another and the two are never equal. They never have been, not in any culture, not anywhere on the earth, at any time in human history. So where is God's voice in all of this? Where is God's voice for Devontae Sanford? Where is God's voice for taxpayers in Velda City getting worse services and paying 20 times the rate for that? How does God speak to systemic injustice, to issues of justice in society? We're going to look at at Amos chapter 5. It's the word of the Lord that came through the prophet Amos as he preached the word of God, the truth to the people of Israel 3,000 years ago nearly. We're going to read verses 4 through 7, verses 10 to 15, verses 21 to 24. If you want, you can follow along on the screen or you can follow along in your pew Bible beginning in page 1425. This is the prophecy of Amos chapter 5 beginning in verse 4. This is what the Lord, Yahweh, says to the house of Israel. Seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel, Do not seek Gilgal. Do not journey to Beersheba. These were religious pilgrimage sites. For Gilgal will surely go into exile and Bethel will be reduced to nothing. Seek the Lord and live or he will sweep through the house of Joseph like a fire. It will devour and Bethel will have no one to quench it. You who turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness to the ground. In verse 10, You hate the one who reproves in court and despise him who tells the truth. You trample on the poor and force him to give you grain. Therefore, though you have built stone mansions, you will not live in them. And though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. For I know how many are your offenses and how great your sins. You oppress the righteous and you take bribes. You deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Therefore, the prudent man keeps quiet in such times, for the times are evil. Seek good, not evil, that you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you, just as you say he is. Hate evil and love good. Maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. And verse 21 I, the Lord, hate. I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I can't stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of all of your songs. I won't listen to the music of your harps. but let justice roll down like a river. And righteousness, like a never-failing stream. What is justice? Why is it difficult? How is it possible? First question, what is justice? The absence of justice is described in verse 10 as influencing the courts, such such that rich people get better counsel and better judgments than the poor. In verse 11, he lists unfairly taxing the poor, or using poor people to bolster their personal economic well-being such that some can build mansions and plant vineyards while others live in poverty. In verse 12, God speaks through Amos and mentions bribery and using money to influence public officials such that those with deep pockets can get favorable access to those with power. This involves personal acts of injustice as well as what we call structural justice, which is injustice or unfairness on account of the way the system is structured. You say it's just the way we do things. God says the way you do things is structurally unjust. That's how the Bible describes the absence of justice bribery, unfairly taxing the poor, unequal access, unequal justice in the courts. But, but what is actual justice? That's what the absence looks like in this passage. The presence of justice is described with two terms here. Uh, two Hebrew terms, uh, one is mishpat and one is tzadeka, translated justice and righteousness. And there are two terms that are often used in parallel. Sometimes they're used almost synonymously, but they have slightly different emphasis. We're going to focus on mishpat, but we'll talk briefly about tzedakah and then talk about what happens whenever the Bible joins the two of those together. First of all, mishpat, biblical justice. The term mishpat is used over 200 times in the Hebrew scriptures. In the courts, mishpat means that all people are created, are, 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 are Uh, 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 are are treated fairly uh, based on the merits of their actual judicial case without allowing any partiality or discrimination based on race or economic standing or social status. It even says in the Hebrew Scriptures again and again, make sure the migrant among you gets the exact same justice, the exact same mishpat as the native-born. Uh, without regard to race, nationality, everybody gets the same justice based on the merits of their case. But, but more than that, mishpat, or justice, means giving everybody their rights. And I know often I hear Christians uh, say that the Bible doesn't talk about rights, it talks about responsibilities. And uh, I've probably said that more than a few times, and there's certainly more than a grain of salt in that. But the Bible also speaks about rights, about human rights. Proverbs 31.9, defend the rights of the poor, defend the rights of the needy. It's why the Bible speaks of several protected classes in the Old Testament, classes of people who keep coming up. You read the Hebrew prophets, you read the law of Moses, you read the prophets, who's, who's mentioned again and again and again as protected classes of people. Widows, orphans, immigrants, poor people, needy people. This is why Zechariah chapter 7 says, This is what the Lord Almighty says administer true justice, mishpat, show mercy and compassion to one another, do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the immigrant, or the poor. These were people groups who had no social power in the ancient world. And God's call to justice, or mishpat, is a call to side with the very groups of people who lack social or political power, to apply pressure to even out the scales that otherwise will always be tipped against them because we're fallen and they don't have power. Uh, You think in our culture about the homeless, about undocumented migrants, about Uh, people who lack fluency in the English language. You think about the unborn. You think about foster children. You think about people with mental illnesses or people with developmental disabilities. You think about racial or ethnic or sexual minorities. You think about people who have been enslaved. You think about the elderly. You think about victims of human trafficking, people who are easily ignored, who can be easily taken advantage of, who are easily overlooked and who have less access to the justice of the court system. Micah 6 8. He has showed you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? And this is because. The God of the Bible presents himself to us. He identifies himself to us specifically as a God of mishpat, a God of justice. In Psalm 146, says the Lord executes justice, that is mishpat, for the oppressed, and he gives food to the hungry. The Lord is the one who sets prisoners free. The Lord is the one who gives sight to the blind. The Lord is the one who lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves those who live in mishpat. The Lord watches over the emigrant and sustains the fatherless and the widow. Deuteronomy 10, the Lord your God defends the cause, the mishpat of the fatherless and the widow. And he loves the immigrant and gives the immigrant his food and clothing. Do you do that? Is your life a life of justice? Is your life a life of mishpat? Is that how those who know you would characterize you as one who, who lives for the sake of the needy, who watches out for the weak, who is the first to stand up on the playground to defend the kid that everybody's picking on because they're different? It's striking. ...to see how often the Lord God of Abraham introduces himself as a defender of these vulnerable groups. You know, don't, don't miss the significance of this. You know, When people ask me, hey, Greg, how do you want to be introduced before this group? I say, well, I'm Greg Johnson, and I'm one of the pastors at Memorial Presbyterian Church in St. Louis. And I, I say it that way because that is what I spend most of my time doing, and that is my public identity... Uh, I do lots of other things, but that's the main way that I go about doing my public life. So Tim Keller says, Realize then how significant it is that the biblical writers introduce God as the father of the fatherless, the defender of widows, Psalm 68, verses 4 and 5 one of the main things that he does in the world is is the God of the Bible identifies first and foremost as the defender of the powerless, as the one who takes up their cause. The Sri Lankan theologian Vinoth Ramachandra says this. He says, "...among Israel's neighbors, as indeed in the ancient cultures of the world, the power of the gods was channeled through the power of certain elite males." The power of the gods was channeled through the priests and through the warriors and through the kings. Opposition to the priests and the kings and the warriors, to those with power, was tantamount to rebellion against the gods. But here, he says, in Israel's rival vision, it is the orphan, the widow, and the stranger with whom Yahweh takes his stand. His power is exercised in history for their empowerment. Tim Keller says it this way. He says, From ancient times, the God of the Bible stood out from the gods of all the other religions because he was the God on the side of the powerless and of justice for the poor. There are these two words, mishpat and tzadake, uh, justice, if you will, and righteousness that are both held together in this passage. Tzadake or righteousness, uh, you know, let justice roll down like the water's and righteousness like a never-failing stream. Uh, righteousness is kind of the same thing, but viewed primarily relationally. Uh, righteousness, we tend to think of it as doing the right things on the list private, but the Bibles uh, talk about righteousness as always in relationships, doing right by God, doing right by other people, doing right by the poor, doing right by the oppressed, doing right by them. It's It's tzaddike, it's, it's righteousness in its Hebrew sense. It's a social concept. Uh, not an abstraction, but relationally living in relationship with people such that you treat them in a way that does right by them. And these two concepts of, of mishpat and sadakeh, of justice and righteousness, when they're joined together, as they are nearly 40 times in the Bible, and as they're joined together in this passage, uh, the scholar N.T. Wright argues that whenever these two are joined, they best translate using our modern term of social justice. Justice in the social sphere, personal but also structural. Psalm 33, 5, the Lord loves social justice. And so the call of God through Amos is a call to justice in society that we as as his followers would seek to bring that to bear, seeking the welfare of the weakest and the most vulnerable when the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. stood on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. on August 28, 1963, and he invoked the prophet Amos in his call for racial justice, he wasn't simply using biblical allusions and appropriating them as metaphors out of political expediency. He was a pastor and he was a theologian. And he was speaking out of the prophecy of Amos, the heart of Amos. The heart of Amos is God. And he said this. Martin Luther King, Jr., he said, There are those who are asking the devotees of civil rights, uh, When will you be satisfied? And he uses what were then the socially appropriate terms. He says, We can never be satisfied as long as the Negro is the victim of the unspeakable horrors of police brutality. We cannot be satisfied as long as the Negro's basic mobility is from a smaller ghetto to a larger one. We can never be satisfied as long as our children are stripped of their selfhood and robbed of their dignity by signs stating for whites only. We cannot be satisfied so long as the Negro in Mississippi cannot vote and the Negro in New York believes he has nothing for which to vote. No, no, we are not satisfied and will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like a river and righteousness like a mighty stream. It was James Cone who said that Martin Luther King Jr. is America's most important Christian theologian precisely because of what he said and did about race from a theological point of view. And yet what drove his message was ancient What drove it was the heart of God for social justice, the heart of God for the weak, for the poor, for the outcast, for those who are denied access to social and political power, both personally justice in the way we relate and structurally just on behalf of those who lack social influence. This is what Jesus said. It's what Michelle read earlier from Luke 14. When you give a luncheon or a dinner, Jesus said, don't invite your friends, don't invite your brothers or your relatives or the rich neighbors that you got. Instead, he said, invite people who can't pay you back. Invite the poor, invite the disabled, invite the lame, invite blind people. You see, in the ancient world, dinners were a form of of, of social networking for patronage. Inviting a rich person to dinner, you were saying, I will vote for you. And I will defend you when your honor is besmirched. And in return, you're going to help my kids get into college and you're going to help pay for it. You see, you wanted to relate and interact in a network and a patronage system that would advantage you. And so, of course, you invited the rich, the powerful, the influential, and you wind them and you dined them because they would then be able to open doors for you and for your children. And as Jesus is saying, no, invite the homeless. Invite the person who's trafficked. Invite the person that nobody loves. Invite the the elderly person whose family is all passed on and moved away and she's all alone. Invite people who won't be able to advantage you to tip the scales, to put your hand on the scale of justice which is inherently biased and tilted away from them and to put pressure to bring it back and make it tilted evenly. It's the justice of God, the heart of God for social justice. Let justice roll down like a river. Righteousness, like a never-failing stream. Why is it difficult? Why is it so hard to live for the sake of other people? Friends, it's difficult because it's costly. Amos understands that he's talking to people who are basically selfish, who have their own needs, who have their own challenges, who are trying to look out for themselves and for their family and for the people that they love and care for. And when the prophecy comes and says, oh, I want you to then take on the obligation to love all of these other people, that really strikes at our selfishness. And yet that's exactly what he's calling us to. And you say, Greg, you don't understand, Greg. This is one more thing, Greg. I've got kids to take care of and I need to focus on them right now. And I'm sure you do. But in that focus... What are you actually teaching your children? Are you teaching your children that the world revolves around them? That everybody should drop everything at a hat in order to take care of them? Are you teaching your kids that life amounts to making sure that you never miss out on any opportunity and so you're, you're carting them around from one activity to another activity to, to the lessons and the dance and the, the sports and the after school, this, that, and the other. And and rearranging their whole world to center on them? Because what's going to happen then? They're going to learn that. They're listening. They're taking notes. You're discipling them into something. Are you setting them up to be miserable, angry, self-absorbed adults who don't know God? Or are you setting them up to know that life is all about helping other people, sacrificing yourself for the sake of those in greatest need, that life is something that we rearrange our needs and our priorities to benefit other people. Is that what you're training your kids? Is that what you're modeling for them? Because that's what Jesus did for us when He rearranged everything and sacrificed Himself for our sake. It's costly, and also we assume that justice is not really our responsibility. Uh, as Americans, we tend to process things through a radical individualism as our basic paradigm. Instead of a biblical notion of solidarity, we tend to assume that we don't owe anything to anyone unless we've voluntarily entered into an agreement or a social construct or compact whereby we are obligating ourselves to them. And the Bible's view is very different. The Bible's view is that you are your brother's keeper, that we are all made in God's image and we are in solidarity with one another. And we therefore are born with this obligation to take care of others, to be a blessing to them to care for them, to look out for them, particularly those who are in greatest need. The Bible never calls this charity because charity assumes that it's what? Optional. The Bible calls this justice because you owe it to the poor to be a blessing to them. You owe it to the weak you owe it to the person who is different from everyone else, whose concerns will be overlooked. Everybody, corporately and individually, we owe it to them. It's why the Bible calls it mishpat. It's why the Bible calls it justice, uh, because we all are born into this obligation. You know, one argument that I've heard used against this whole notion, it's the argument of, of the, vi- the violinist, the famous violinist. I don't know if you've heard this. The, the argument goes like this. Uh, Imagine, if you will, that a world-famous violinist has caught a horrible disease whereby they will certainly die. And yet at the last moment of their life, they take a hose and somehow through a miracle of modern science, they hook their hose up into your chest cavity and begin receiving all of their life and, and nutrients and nutrition and oxygen through you. And they are now kept alive to fully live their life because they have plugged themselves into you. But it means that you are giving up your privacy. It means you're giving up your freedom. It means your life suddenly has to be radically reoriented around the famous violinist so that the famous violinist doesn't die. Because if you then unplug the famous violinist, what's going to happen to him? He will immediately die. And the way the argument is structured is that we, uh, as individuals, have no obligation to actually support the famous violinist because you as a human being and a private individual never entered into an agreement whereby you agreed to support this famous violinist. Furthermore, we never entered as society into a compact whereby we would obligate ourselves to support this famous violinist. And therefore, are you justified in unplugging the violinist even though he dies? Or are you responsible for that? The answer is no, unless you look at the Bible. Because the biblical vision here is that you are your brother's keeper. Your call is to love your neighbor because God made all of us in his image and every human being is of infinite worth. And as humans, we have taken on ourselves this obligation because we were made in God's image. It's something to which we are born. Are you saying, Greg, that I'm responsible to sacrifice for other people who, to whom I've never made that kind of agreement? Yes. Yes. That's what Jesus says, and that's what the prophet Amos is saying, to love your neighbor, not because you've entered voluntarily into a social compact with them and signed yourself up for a voluntary duty of care. That's charity. No, it's justice. You owe your neighbor love because they were made in God's image and are therefore of infinite worth. And as Christians, what you've got to deal with is whether you really believe that God is big enough to take care of you as you focus on taking care of your absurd theoretical possibility of the famous violinist. See, black lives matter, for example, because they're made in God's image. They don't matter because you've agreed to treat them as if they matter. Every human being, from the womb to the tomb, is of infinite value. You don't have an optional opportunity. You've got a duty of justice to protect other lives at the cost of your own life, just as Jesus did for you. This is what Jesus did. Got another slide here. Um, This was a story I came across on Facebook. It was uh, 2012. It was a cold November night in Times Square, and 25-year-old officer Lawrence DiPrimo was working a counterterrorism post when he encountered an older, barefooted homeless man. And the police officer, who's normally assigned a different section of the city, said, uh, "You know, I looked over, and someone was laughing at this elderly gentleman who had no socks on his feet, and he had no shoes. And somebody was laughing at him, and you could see the blisters on his feet even from a distance. I had two pairs of socks on, and I was still cold. And so Officer De Primo walked over, and he asked the man if he had anything to cover his feet, and." The man responded and said, It's okay, sir. I've never had a pair of shoes. But God bless you anyway. As the homeless man strolled away, Primo caught up to him and asked him what his shoe size was. Then went over and walked into the Skechers on West 42nd Street. Primo, told a worker, I'd like to buy a pair of boots, something that will last a long time. I don't care what the price is. And a few minutes later, this kind-hearted cop bought a $100 pair of all-weather boots, size 12. A store manager later said, we were just kind of shocked. I mean, most of us are New Yorkers. We just kind of pass by this kind of thing every day, especially in this neighborhood. The act of kindness would have gone unnoticed and mostly forgotten had it not been for a woman from Arizona, a tourist named Jennifer Foster, who saw it and snapped the photo and posted it online. She said, this officer expected nothing in return and he didn't realize that i was watching see that's justice that's an individual taking the responsibility to be his brother's keeper to love his neighbor and to bring about mishpat justice for the weak and tzedakah righteousness right relation to do right by that man who is homeless that's justice it's beautiful it's compelling it's difficult It's what Jesus did for us. Let justice roll down like a river. So how is it possible? Thank you. The way it's possible is by addressing the vertical issue because injustice on our part, selfishness on our part, is always primarily a symptom. That's enough for the slide. Thank you. Done with that one. Um, It's this... uh, the fact that this passage, what the prophet Amos points them to, is the power to actually live a life of radical self sacrifice for other people, of radical love. Because what he says is he says, the basic problem here is, is, is not horizontal. That's the symptom. The basic problem is you have not sought me and drawn life from me. He says it again and again seek me and live. He's calling them to a new destination in life. These were religious people. Religious people who would go to these shrines at Bethel and Gilgal and Beersheba and they'd offer sacrifices and they'd give away money and they'd sing all sorts of songs. And God says, I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I can't stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I won't accept them. Away with the noise of your songs, he's saying. Your worship annoys me. Stop going on all these religious pilgrimages. Make your pilgrimage to me. Make me your journey. Come to me and you will have life. Come to me and draw from me the ability to live a life of radical self-sacrifice, of love and beauty, of compassion. Make me your journey, your path, and your destination. He says, verse 14, Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you. But that requires a realization to find life in the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, requires first that deep-seated realization that I'm the biggest problem, that I'm the poorest soul, that I'm the most blind, that I'm the neediest, that I'm the outcast, that I'm the one desperately in need of grace. I'm the one in my blindness and self-centeredness who needs mercy from God. I'm guilty. God says in verse 12, I know how many are your offenses and how great your sins. He's seen it all. He sees my implicit racism, my classism, the real, and, and, and wants me to realize I am the biggest sinner in the room. What Jesus called being poor spiritually. Because you can't be saved if you're middle class in spirit. Middle class in spirit means you think you have something to offer God. But when you know that you're the problem, when you know I, Greg Johnson, am the worst, when I grasp how deep my situation is, that it's God that I need, that only God can make sense out of this life. He's the one for whom I was made. Jesus said he came to call the sick, and I'm sick. He said he came to call the unrighteous, not the righteous, and I realize I'm unrighteous. When we grasp the gravity of our need, it changes how we view those who are poor. You view the poor as my people, because I know what it's like to have a debt I cannot pay. I had a debt, infinite debt, before God, and I know what it's like when Jesus came and took my debt and said, I'm going to take care of this for you, Greg. Greg and took it all the way to the cross to pay my debt for me? How can I then look at someone else and judge someone because of their poverty? I look at them and I say, those are my people. They're just like me. It's how God turns our hearts to justice and compassion as we realize that we're the ones with the biggest need. In 2008, Paul Hibbert, a municipal court judge from Ohio, was discussing the purpose of life with his daughters, and they asked him what the purpose was, and he kind of flubbed some, some kind of answer about being a light in darkness. And, and about nine months later, as he was thinking about this all of that time, why did God put me here? Why did God make me a judge? I mean, it's kind of a difficult, uh, you know, difficult job to have as a Christian. Uh, he started seeing this procession of de- domestic violence victims coming through his courts, Um, and uh, after that, a sheriff brought before his court a prostitute, and as he looked at this woman, he realized that she looked exactly like one of the domestic violence victims that he had been seeing. It it shook up his categories, and he began to research the criminology of prostitution, and what he learned stunned him. He learned that 87% of people in that profession had been abused themselves, typically starting around age eight, They had often started using drugs to deal with the trauma around age 12. Girls often ran away from home or from foster care, and they were dragged uh, by predators into the commercial trade. And Herbert decided to apply his faith to his work. He launched a program that would, instead of jailing these women, it would provide them counseling, it would provide them structure. It would provide them accountability. It would provide them job training. And he actually began to see the changes. He says, you know, one woman you know, who had been you know, sold as a little girl to older men for crack cocaine. Today she's in Phi Theta Kappa at Columbus State Community College. Another who had been kidnapped by a motorcycle gang was trans- and been transported and sold is now two years sober from heroin. And yet, Hebert emphasizes the spiritual transformation that occurred not in their life, but in his life. In his view, the person most impacted by this ministry is himself. He says this. He says, The Holy Spirit continues to reveal how much I've been forgiven, how similar I am to the individuals that come before me in court. says, that's really hard to say. My job is to judge people. But the farther I go along, seeking justice with Jesus the more I realize that I am just like most of these women. And that makes me more understanding, more kind, and more merciful. It's when you realize that you're the biggest sinner, that your needs are the biggest, and you see Jesus come to you, you see the God of Abraham come to you and promise, if you seek me, you will live. Not coating, covering over the emptiness with all the stuff and all the busyness, but allowing Jesus to come He said, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. He says multiple times in this passage, seek me and live. I am the source of life. I am the resurrection and the life. He who the Son sets free shall be free indeed. Christianity was never intended to make sense on the shelf in a book as a philosophy. And it was never made to satisfy in that way. Christianity was only designed to make sense of your life when it's put into practice in a life of radical self-sacrifice for the weak, just as God did that for you. Let justice roll down like a river, and you will have life, he says. Because what God himself commands us to do, he did himself. Have you considered how when Jesus entered into absolute solidarity with humanity by becoming a human being. Have you considered how he was voluntarily obligating himself to save all of those who would be willing to respond? God the Son, not obligated at all and yet choosing to become human, knowing that by his incarnation, he would therefore become his, na- his brother's keeper. He would therefore have this burden and calling to establish justice for the sake of the weak and the poor and the lame and the helpless, that he would take upon himself that burden voluntarily, saying, I will plug the violinist into me and the violinist shall live. And he took that responsibility all the way to the cross, as a God of justice, a God of righteousness, a God of life. I'll conclude with one story here. Gregory Boyle tells a story of a 15 year old gang member named Regal. Regal was getting ready for a special worship service for incarcerated youth when Boyle casually asked if his father would be joining them. No, he said. He's a heroin addict and never been in my life. Used to always beat me. And then something snapped inside Rigo as he recalled an image from his childhood. He says, I think it was in fourth grade. I come home, sent home in the middle of the day. My dad says, why'd they send you home? Because my dad always beats me. I said, if I tell you, you promise you won't beat me? And he just said, I'm your father. Of course I'm going to hit you. And so I told him. Rigo began to cry as he told the story. And in a moment, it was as if a dam of sorrow and hurt burst inside his heart. And he started wailing and rocking back and forth. And Boyle put his arm around him until he slowly calmed down. And when Rigo could finally speak again, he spoke quietly, still in a state of shock. He beat me with a pipe, with a pipe. After Rigo composed himself, Boyle asked about his mom. Rigo pointed to a tiny, frail little woman across the way and said, "That's my mama over there. There's no one else like her in all world." When Rigo paused and said, "I've been locked up for a year and a half now, and my mama comes to see me every Sunday." You know how many buses my mama takes every Sunday to see me? Rigo started sobbing with the same ferocity as before. And after catching his breath, he gasped through the sobs. Seven buses. She takes seven buses. Friends, look at Jesus. If you want your heart melted and remade in the justice of God... Look at the one who took seven buses to see you. The one who entered into solidarity with you in your brokenness and guilt and fear and insecurity and shame. And he came to you again and again at great personal cost, sacrificing himself because your father is not the father who beats you with a pipe. He is a father of mercy, a dad of justice and compassion, who takes seven buses to reach his son's and he'll keep doing so until our hearts are warmed by his compassion, until your heart burns like his for justice, to roll down like a river, and righteousness like a never-failing stream. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts.